Well, it seems the, uh, I, I look out, we're speaking to a church primarily of immigrants or children of immigrants. Almost everybody I look at is either an immigrant or a, or a son or a daughter, grandson of immigrants. And the immigration debate is everywhere in the news these days, and particularly I'm an American, so I've listened to a lot of American news. You know, we have an election over the last couple weeks, and it just seems immigration is something on everybody's mind, particularly as there's this uh, massive migration of people heading through Central America toward the border of our southern uh, neighbor. And most of the current debate these days focuses on the question of immigration from the perspective of the nation that is seeking to know whether or not or how hospitable to be toward immigrants. How welcoming we should be. But in Genesis 46 and 47, and we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at this. In Genesis 46 and 47, we see the issue from a different perspective. For as we, we pick up in this chapter, particularly, for example, in verse 5, as we pick up in Genesis 5, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, Jacob's also called Israel, are packing up their little ones, their wives, and the wagons the Pharaoh sent to carry them. They're taking their livestock and their goods, and they are in a caravan with all their offspring, their sons and their sons' sons, bringing them all toward the border in Egypt. As we noted two Sundays ago, this wasn't a light decision on their part. Famine had initially forced them to seek aid in Egypt, and as God had miraculously preserved them through one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, they'd been invited by Pharaoh to settle in the land. However, even with that invitation, even with Pharaoh saying, please bring your family, bring your father, bring your brothers and come, Jacob paused at the southern border of Canaan because he would not go into Egypt. He would not leave the land that God had promised his family until he had direction from the Lord that this is what he was to do. And so God met Israel, if you remember two weeks ago, God met their family, Israel, at the southern border of Canaan and said to them, um, verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. He said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also to bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. And so as we pick up in this chapter, chapter 46, this caravan of Jacob and his descendants and his sons and his sons' sons are making their way forward toward the land of Egypt where they would sojourn not just for that generation, but actually for hundreds of years. This is an interesting thought, I mean, just before we begin, because I'm looking at you guys and almost everyone in here is either an immigrant or a child of immigrants, and sometimes when I think about my own life and where I'm going to live and the decisions I make about my career and my family and where we're going to go, I tend to think of it in terms of my own lifetime not really giving consideration that when I immigrate into Canada as a, you know, I'm from the States, and when I immigrate to Canada, truly that could be impacting generations of burdens that will grow up saying, eh? <laughs> right, there we go. 
And as the the question that lingers over these two chapters, Genesis 46 and 47, the question that lingers as this caravan moves toward Egypt, particularly as they are the people of, of the promise, is this. How is Israel to live during the time of their sojourn? How is Israel to live during the period of time that they're going to be dwelling in Egypt. And this week and next week, we're going to look at two principles of, and we call them sojourning principles. And the first one we're going to look at today, so today in my message, I have this. We're going to unpack this a bit. Having been called to be a holy nation, God's people must, with intention, with intentionality, preserve their distinctiveness during their sojourning in the land of idolatry. That's what we're going to be unpacking. Having been called a holy nation, God's people must with intention preserve their distinctiveness during their sojourning in the land of idolatry. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look in this passage, you open up our hearts and give us wisdom and speak to us, Holy Spirit, particularly in the application of this principle and how we live here as strangers and aliens in this land that you've called us to. Amen. And so basically two, we're going to look at two basic things today out of this principle. Number one, the having been called to be a holy nation, and then the idea of living with intentionality. That's what we're looking at, this call to be a holy nation, and this idea of living with intentionality. And so we're going to look at it as we're going through this chapter. So first, very quickly, we're going to look at the call to be a holy nation. The call, I, I write distinct here, but so we, we understand that God promised to make the house of Israel a distinct nation. And, and get this, and I want you to understand this, this is a particular promise given to a particular family. That in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to Abraham when he was still living way around in, in Mesopotamia. God spoke to Abraham and said, go from the land that you're dwelling in, go from your family, and go into the land that I will show you. And God made promises to Abraham and his descendants. One of those promises being, I will make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And as we just read at the beginning of chapter 46, um, the promise is reiterated to, to Jacob as he's at Beersheba about to leave the land of promise and to go to Egypt. God reiterates that promise in a way reassuring Jacob that his promises are still in effect, even as Jacob and his family are going to flee and sojourn in Egypt. God says, don't be afraid to go into Egypt, because I will... Sh- uh, sorry, this got ahead of us a little bit, but he says, in that verse we're going before in Genesis 46, he says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, because there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt and bring you up again. And so God's intent is to make Israel a great nation, a distinct nation, even while they're removed from the land of Canaan and living as migrants sojourning in the land of Egypt. But we have to remember this is not just any nation. And why I say that they not only need to pursue their distinctiveness, but pursue holiness, is that the nation of Israel was not just to be a nation like any of the other nations in the world. They were to be a particular and a peculiar nation. They were to be a nation 
to become great for a specific purpose. God's intent was to make them into a holy nation. They're not just a great nation. Like nations rise and fall. Nations come and go. Right? But Israel was to be a people devoted to the Lord, a holy nation. Later in the book of Exodus, Israel is called to be set apart for God as a kingdom of priests, a nation that stands between the other nations of the world and God and proclaims to the other nations of the world the goodness of God. And mediating and proclaiming God's salvation. But in order for Israel to do this, it's imperative that they retain a specific character to pass on knowledge of the Lord and his ways to their children and to the foreigners who dwell among them. So this is explicit, for example, in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, Genesis 18 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when I preach that story, I told you it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, not because I love judgment and wrath being poured out on sinners, but because I appreciate God's heart as a teacher. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do here? I'm, I'm, I, I, I need to because of their sin. I'm going to be judging these cities. But shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do here? Because Abraham, verse 18, will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. So get what God's saying there. It's not just that I have chosen Abraham to be a great nation, to be a distinct nation, but he says there, I'm not going to hide my character from Abraham, because Abraham is going to teach his children about me. And in teaching his children about me, Abraham, the, the nation that comes from Abraham is not just going to be a distinct nation, it is going to be a nation set apart for a purpose. It is going to be a holy nation. And so, this is important. They're not just seeking... Israel, when they sought their distinctiveness as a nation, were, was not just so that they could set themselves apart from the people of the earth because they were better than them. Or because, it was so that they may maintain their purpose and their identity as the people of God. That God was setting apart for a purpose of bringing his plan of salvation through in order to bless the nations. And in order to do that, Israel had to have kept its distinctiveness. And so this is the main threat that looms over this migration. Look at verses 46, uh, 26. Look at, what's, uh, look at uh, what's highlighted here. All the persons belonging to Jacob came into Egypt. All the persons of the house of Jacob that came to Egypt were 70. And, and then he actually says, so, so the, the author, uh, Moses, kind of manipulates this number a little bit because he says, well, Jacob, Joseph had two sons in Egypt, so he brings the number up to 70. And in the Bible, this number of 70 is like, it means, kind of signifies a, perf- a, a completeness, a wholeness. And so what Moses is doing here is he's highlighting for us, like, I put it in bold in some of my slides, but he highlights it through numbers. What he's doing is he's highlighting to us that all of the people that God had set apart, all of the people that God had set apart to be a part of this blessing people, all of them now are emigrating into Egypt. There's no one left behind. There's no plan B. Right? And if you can, if, if you can just give your, wrap your mind around this, God had chosen to put his name on this people group, on this family. 
And God's plan of redemption that it would extend and include even you and I was dependent upon this people group preserving its character as a distinct and holy nation. And there's no plan B. There's no other relatives left back in Canaan. This is it. All of Jacob's sons, all of his household, all that is going to become this great and distinct and holy nation is now going to be here in Egypt. And the question that looms over these chapters is, are they and how are they going to preserve their distinctiveness as the people of God as they dwell as they sojourn amongst the Egyptians. Which brings us to our second point. The intentionality, right? Having been called to be a holy nation. Right right now, they're not a nation yet. In Genesis 46, when they go to Egypt, they're just still a family. Right? They're not yet a nation. They're 70 people. So as they go from a family to a nation, which God says will happen while they're sojourning in Egypt, how are they going to maintain their distinctiveness and their pursuit of holiness living in a land of idolatry? Which brings us to the second point, which is the intentionality of Joseph. The intentionality of Joseph to preserve their distinctiveness. The intentionality of Joseph, because there's a call to be a distinct and holy nation, and because the threat looms so large that they will lose their distinctiveness as God's holy and chosen people as they dwell in Egypt over the course of generations. The steps that Joseph takes in this chapter are highlighted for us to preserve their distinction. Joseph takes, the steps he takes are truly significant and instructive to us. Joseph has a plan, okay? Joseph has thought this through, and he has a plan in order to preserve their character as a distinctive and holy nation as they dwell in Egypt. We know in an early chapter, we already saw Joseph's plan disclosed. Uh, On the screen I have Genesis 45. This is the chapter before. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers for the first time, that he is the one in charge of Egypt. And when he reveals himself to them, he says, Go and tell my father. Go and tell our dad. To come down here. And when he says this, come to me, don't tarry. In verse 10, Joseph, we can see Joseph already had this intended plan in mind. He says, go tell dad, come down here, and here's my plan. You will dwell in the land of Goshen. Joseph wishes his brothers to settle in this land of Goshen. Goshen. Goshen is this land, it's this region. Here's Egypt, and Egypt goes all the way around here, right? Egypt's huge. Uh, but Goshen is, Goshen is this land that's at the, um, you know, the northeast quad, you know, little corner of Egypt, right? This is actually the land of Canaan over here. And so Goshen is as close as you can get to Canaan while still being in Egypt. It's at, in this Nile uh, Delta plain, which is actually a pretty good pasture land. It's a good place where Jacob, you know, he's a shepherd. You can take, uh, there's, it's desert mostly today, but back then it was a pretty good pasture land. And here's the, here's the point. They're as close to Canaan as they can get, and they're far away from the center of Egypt as they can get. Uh, at that point, in the, in the middle kingdom of Egypt, the capital was, um, well, now it's my mind, but the name of the city is. But it's located uh, around here. So this is where Pharaoh is, and this is where the center of Egyptian culture is. And the children of Israel are like, no, we're gonna, this is a good part for us to be in. Right? We are just, just give us this kind of corner. 
up here. A Thebes, that's the middle city. So it would be a perfect place for Israel to grow into a nation while remaining distinct from the Egyptian culture around them. So that's Joseph's plan. His intended mind is, well, you guys can, can, can settle in Goshen. The problem is Joseph hadn't yet cleared his plan with the Pharaoh. And so, what happens is, Joseph actually meets his brothers in Goshen before they get any further in Egypt. He said, uh, so Jacob sends Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. Do you see what's happening here? Moses is just repeating this again and again. Goshen, Goshen, Goshen. And Joseph goes up and he kind of intercepts them before they can get any further into Egypt and says, stay here. Like, this is where we're going to stay. It's almost like this possession is nine-tenths of the law type of idea. So that when Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, my family's here. And Pharaoh's like, well, where are they? He's like, well, they're in Goshen. It's kind of like sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission type of idea. Joseph's just like, just stay there. When he goes to Pharaoh, that seed's already planted in Pharaoh's mind. And look, look how quick, this, this should be the greatest reunion in all of Genesis, when Joseph sees his father, and Moses gives it like part of two verses. Right? J- J- Joseph is reunited with Jacob, and he gets all of two verses. Uh, he pre- Joseph presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you're still alive. And immediately, um, Joseph gets into his plan, right? Because Joseph has been with intentionality thinking about his family and his family as they're coming to immigrate into the land of Egypt and how are they going to maintain their distinctiveness as they sojourn there. And so this reunification is all of two verses where they weep and cry and hug each other and then immediately right into the plan. Joseph says to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go to Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household where I am the king and have come to me. The men are shepherds. They've been keepers of livestock. They brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? You should say to him, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that, listen, that's important part, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And for a long time I read the book of Genesis and I didn't understand what was going on here. I thought, Joseph knows that the Egyptians like think shepherds are smelly, kind of despicable, lower class people. So, so why is he telling them to like highlight this? And this is not like him going and like making the first impression with his father-in-law type of thing. It's it's that Joseph actually knows what the Egyptians think about shepherds, and Joseph tells his family highlight that. Why? Because Joseph actually wants the Egyptians, he's actually counting on the Egyptians to kind of want to keep the Israelites at arm's length. He wants the Egyptians to kind of say, you know what, we're really happy you're here, Jacob. We're really happy you came. We love your son. He's really helped out our country a lot. Why don't you guys stay over there? Right? And so so this is part of Joseph's plan. How do you present yourself to Pharaoh? Present itself in a way that he will give you ultimately what you want, and ultimately what you want is to be left alone over here. And so Joseph went in and tells Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and their herds and all they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They're now waiting in the land of Goshen. 
right? Joseph's just kind of planting that seed in Pharaoh's mind. And then from among his brothers, he took five of them and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land. There's no pasture for your servants' flocks. The famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in Goshen. This whole chapter is just Goshen, 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 Goshen. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, your father and brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is all before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them, and now here Joseph's intentional plan is now ratified by Pharaoh. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And then he even says this, if you know any able men among them, you know, let them take care of my livestock as well. So Pharaoh gives them a job as well. Right? They've got their place to live, and they've got their job. So, Joseph's plan has been executed. His family will be kept distinct. His family is going to be able to keep their own identity. They're going to be able to live in peace, even while they're dwelling among the Egyptians. They're going to be able to seek and pursue holiness, following the Lord and trusting his promises until he makes them into a great nation. So therefore, we have two main points today. Israel was called to be a distinct and holy nation. And, and, and don't be confused. They will be a distinct and holy nation because God's plan and purposes can't fail. But the second observation is just noting the intentionality of Joseph to plan that they might continue to pursue distinctiveness and intentional in regards to the manner of their sojourn as they live in Egypt. And so this is the principle I want to kind of just take and reflect on a little bit this morning for us as a church. This intentionality. For the New Testament teaches that those who believe in Jesus Christ are truly the people of God, set apart to be holy people, and we are dwelling now in the time of our sojourn on earth in a land of idolatry that is not the promised land. So here's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Just so you can see kind of how these principles, even in the story, can we, we can take into and reflect on apply today. The story of the Bible in a nutshell, and I want to explain this for people who maybe you're new to church and you don't you don't know the storyline of the Bible. Here it is in a nutshell. God created mankind in his own image to be known by him and to know him. To be loved by him and to love him. That we might display his character. That we might love and worship him together as one people. But in our sin and in our rebellion against God, we, we did not want him to be the author of our souls and of our destiny. And we wanted to take that into our own hands. And in our rebellion, we turned away from God. We repeatedly turned away from God. Descending into selfishness, isolation, violence, division. We, we run into the chaos of the world. Right? We, 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 we consider it not in our best interest to continue to serve and to worship our Creator, but we, in our sin and our rebellion, we run to the chaos of this world and we end up causing it. However, even as we stubbornly rejected Him, and ran headlong into our death and chaos, he 
revealed to us his rescue mission. That he would send into the world a deliverer, a savior, a messiah. He would come to us and he would chase us down. He would crush our rebellion once and for all, but he would do it in like the, the most unique way ever. Instead of crushing our rebellion by taking the punishment out on us, he crushed our rebellion by taking upon himself our sin and the curse of our sin. He sent his son Jesus into this world on a mission of love, on a mission to rescue the lost. And Jesus came and instead of crushing us for our sins, he was crushed for our sins. And he did this. He, 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 had, he had proclaimed this rescue mission for thousands of years as he unfolded his promises to his chosen people. And so that is why he set Israel apart. That he might make a covenant with them. That he might make a promise to them. That they might then take this promise and proclaim it in the world that the Savior, Deliverer, Messiah was coming. And here's the good news of Scripture. The Savior, Deliverer, Messiah has come. That God did not leave us in our rebellion. That God did not leave us in our despair. God did not leave us in our sin. God did not leave us in our condemnation. But he has, out of his love for us, satisfied his own just character in crushing our sins in Christ. And therefore, we can truly be forgiven and freed and live as the people of God as we embrace his salvation in Jesus Christ. He has proclaimed that, that people from every nation, whoever fears him and does what is right, whoever receives the gift of his salvation in his son, we become part of the people of God. And so if you're here today, I want to tell you that is the good news, and God has proclaimed that good news. He has authoritatively, and for all, once and for all, all time, he has revealed his Savior by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ lives. And as he has seated him, as he ascended Jesus into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, he has poured his spirit out upon the church that we might be the people of God and we might take this good news of hope to all around us. That's the storyline of the Bible. And so we as the people of God are sojourning in this world as we await for Jesus to return and to establish his kingdom. And so we are the people of God sojourning in an idolatrous land. Peter puts it this way. Peter explicitly applies this sojourning principle to us, the church. He says, you are the chosen race. You are the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his mouth marvelous light. And, and there are some people who say, well, Peter's only talking to the Jewish Christians, but look what he says next. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. So he's not just talking to the Jewish people, he's talking to the church, and he's saying, you once were not, not part of God's people, you were not part of the people of God, but because of Jesus Christ, because of uniting to Jesus Christ by faith, Jesus is the true Israel of Israel, and if you are united to him, you are the people of God. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul says it this way, we are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. We are the people of God in this idolatrous world that we're living in. And so what's the sojourning principle? Well, Peter goes on to tell us the sojourning principle. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, when Jesus returns. And so this sojourning principle applies to us, the church. We, like the people of Israel going down to Egypt, we are the sojourning people of God. We are citizens of another kingdom until Christ comes and sets it up among us. And so the question is not just how is Israel going to live among the Egyptians in the land of their sojourn. The question is how are we as the people of God going to live intentionally as the people of God in the time of our sojourn here. And so I want us to consider this morning what this word means to us as a church full of immigrants such as many of us are. Many of us, or if not us, our parents, have had personal experience as foreigners and aliens settling into a new country. We know what it is like to leave a homeland and settle into a strange new land with strange new people and the strange customs and ways of thinking. We know what it's like to miss our home, our families. Some of you guys, I talk to you and you're like, oh, I miss the sights and sounds and the smells of my home country. The smells, right? Of my home country. We miss the weather. Amen. From Canada in the winter. What are we thinking? We fret over our children. Right? We know what it's like. Will, will our children remember their heritage? Will they forget their roots? Will our children not be able to speak to their grandparents? Right? We worry as immigrants. And so what does this sojourning principle have to say to us as an immigrant church? And, and two things, the first a warning and then a challenge. Here's the warning first to us as an immigrant church. As an immigrant church, a church primarily filled up with immigrants, we will at times be tempted to set the retention of our culture before our gospel distinctiveness. I was at the Gospel Coalition Conference a few weeks ago, and I went to a workshop done by a Filipino pastor in Toronto. And he did a really good job describing the plight of an immigrant. Right? You, you're here in this strange land, you don't really speak the language, or you get tired of speaking the language. I just want to go to a place where I can speak my own language. I just want to go to a place where everybody thinks like me, where we share the same common sense. But what happens is we come to the immigrant churches, and we can, like, rest. When I come to my immigrant church, everybody's speaking in my language. When I come to my immigrant church, everybody thinks like me. When I come to my immigrant church, you know, I go to the potluck and it's the food I like. And, and you can relax, you can let your guard down. You're, you're still away from home, but now here you're with your family, you're with your people. And, and the warning that he gave us in the conference is, and the warning that we need to be careful of here at OCC, is that we can become a community formed around our 
cultural heritage rather than around our gospel. Now, Jesus doesn't erase our heritage, he doesn't set it aside, but our heritage is no longer central to our identity. Jesus is. And therefore, we are no longer primarily Chinese, or Filipino, or Indian, or Korean, or Swazi, or American, or Canadian. We are primarily the people of Jesus Christ. And he is the reason why we gather together as his body on a Sunday and throughout the week. It is he who holds us together, not our cultural identity. And as an immigrant church, we are going to be tempted to put our cultural identity above our Savior. And we have to be careful about that. Our heritage, our cultural heritage is important to pass on to our kids. I want my kids to know about the founding fathers of America and the founding values of America. I want them to go to Washington, D.C. someday and, and, and be proud of being American. I want my kids to do that. But I want them to know my Savior more. And let me ask a challenging question. What is more important for the children of our church, that they go to Chinese school on Saturday or Sunday school? What is more important? I'm not trying to make a false dichotomy here. (laughs) Send your kid to Chinese school. I don't care. What is more important? Would you be more upset if your kids missed Chinese school or if your kids missed Sunday school? Would you order and arrange with intentionality your family so their kids are learning the gospel or that they're learning your heritage? What is the priority? And if you say the latter is more important, how are you intentionally passing on that legacy to your children? Whoa, as an immigrant church, we need to struggle with that. We need to take that warning. Secondly, and here's the more positive application, although this will be challenging as well. As a sojourning people, we must, with intentionality, retain our gospel distinctiveness and pursue holiness. Jesus! Jesus! Jesus, he is our identity. He is our community. He is our life. He is our heritage. And as we are living in a nation that does not know him, a nation in which we face onslaught from their principles and their values, we must with great intentionality consider how we are going to raise up a new generation, how we are going to raise up and pour into the next generation, so that their heritage is the Lord. And not just our culture. And let me talk to you about some issues of intentionality. And listen, I'm going to share these things. I pray out of love for you, because I'm going to share some of these things out of more of my failure than my faithfulness. Four areas of intentionality to think through and consider through in your life and your marriage. First, How are we maintaining our identity as a distinct and holy people when it comes to popular culture and social media? Are we just passively assuming the values of our culture? Are we scared to be considered uncool when we don't keep up with the latest in pop culture? Sometimes we pastors are the worst at this. 
Gotta be relevant. Here's a cool movie sermon illustration. And then somebody like, I didn't see that movie. You go watch it and you're like, this was horrific. Is there a difference in us and the values of the world that we consume in when you put your headphones into your ears and when you put screens in front of your eyes? Is it with intentionality preserving our distinctiveness as the people of God? Oh my goodness. Secondly, the greatest, the most important faith question most of you, many of you are going to face, not all of you, but many of you are going to face, are who do I marry? There's going to be nothing that impacts the future legacy of God building a heritage through you than who your spouse and partner is going to be. In the Old Testament, this is why intermarriage with the unbelieving neighbors of Israel was forbidden by law. In the New Testament, we are instructed to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because this will affect our heritage as the people of God. How are you going to raise your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? If you're having a struggle of values within your own marriage. And so young people, as you're dating, young people, as you're you're looking at, I hope someday to be married, this is the issue. And also, do not just fall for somebody who says they're a Christian, but is not walking the way of Christ. Third, and this is where some of you guys might get angry with me, if you haven't already gotten angry with me already. And again, I say, I'm saying this to you, out of my failures as much as out of my faithfulness. But how are we shepherding our children? How are we shepherding our children? Are we with intentionality recognizing that we live as sojourners in a country that is seeking to instill an ideology and values into our children? We literally, and listen, this is where some of you guys might get mad at me, we literally send our kids out of our households as early as we can to be instructed in a system that we know has as its intended purpose the ideological formation of our young people. The school board is not hiding anything. The school board is intentionally telling us that it is their primary mission, not math, not science, their primary mission in the school board is the ideological formation of our children. And we are willingly sending our kids into Egypt. And listen, again, I'm not trying to make a, a law or put a law upon any of us, but We must, as parents, if you've got little kids particularly, with intentionality be thinking through how we are raising and educating our kids. And I say this because my kids are a bit older than some of the, we got a lot of young families in this church and and in our congregation, my family, kids are a bit older, and, and our family has had to do course correction in this because we were naive. And I don't want you guys to be naive. 
We must be at least as intentional as they are in the education of our children. They are intentional to say our purpose is the ideological formation of this next generation of Canadians. We need to be at least that intentional. That means seriously considering alternative education strategies for your children. Seriously considering. That means seriously catechizing our children, bringing them up in the faith. That means severely and seriously and intentionally limiting screen time and the age at which our kids will access social media. And again, I say, I'm saying this out of as much failure as faithfulness. But I really want you younger parents to hear this. I was naive. I don't want you to be. And so please, let's have at least conversations about how to be intentional about the moral instruction and education of our kids. And the best time is when the kids are little rather than course correcting when they're teenagers. And listen and hear me on this because I need to preach this as much to myself as to you. Praise be to God for his sovereign care over our kids. Because we as parents, we know we screw up. And we know we fall short. And we know we failed. And praise be to God that his grace is sustaining for us and them. And, and I'm, not, I'm not just saying that. I have to preach that to myself as a parent all the time. And fourth and finally, discipleship. Like being serious in our lives about our seeking after our Savior, our are growing in maturity, not just sitting in a pew on Sunday, but participating in the people of God, of understanding that, that my salvation and my sanctification is not just an individual pursuit. I am part of this holy nation together. And so when I come to the people of God, when I come into... Uh, into worship with the people of God. I do not come as an individual unto myself. I come as a member of the holy tribe. Right? This is not about I consider how I might encourage not just me to you, but you considering how you might encourage one another to pursue love and good works. You might consider together how you might grow in your faith together. You might you might be part of a small group. You might join us in discipleship on Sunday morning. Like, this is a vision we need to set in front of ourselves. With intentionality seeking God together. Intentionality seeking God together. So, providentially, because I didn't realize this is what my sermon was going to be about today. Providentially, uh, my Sunday school, Sunday discipleship, is starting a new study next week called Cultivating Habits of the Heart. That entire study is about... Thinking through our lives with intention of how we might grow in Christ. It's the entire thing. And so if right now the Holy Spirit is saying, man, I should be more intentional about how I'm going to live as the people of God sojourning among the nations, come next Sunday at 945 or upstairs. Okay? Man. I look around and I see a church full of immigrants. But that is so secondary. I look around and I see a church filled with sojourning people of God. And might we be a church with intentionality, seeking to preserve our distinctiveness and preserve our holiness.